Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Live Story Curator, bringing you the podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to stories of people who have been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas, or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everybody starts somewhere, and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Maggie Drucker. Welcome, Maggie. Good afternoon. Nice to be with you, Kathy. And Maggie's got two titles that are very interesting, and I can't wait to dive into these. Uh, she is the Chief Relationship Officer for Prosper Bridge and the Queen of Culture for Rise. So love those titles and love that you have a little bit of fun with the title because that then asks, you know, encourages people to find out more about you. Plays to who I am too, you know, ah. you can't have fun and enjoy what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> so Maggie, I always like to start with the icebreaker questions, which are, where did you grow up? What part of the country? And where were you in the birth order in your family? And how do you think that shaped you? So I'm a Midwest girl. Um, I was born in a suburb of Chicago and had formative years in Milwaukee and parts of Wisconsin before my family settled in Des Moines, Iowa when I was in sixth grade. And um, many of them still live there and, and have family mostly in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I am the oldest of three, but I'm also blessed with three beautiful older stepsisters and two wonderful older stepbrothers as later in life my parents both remarried. And I, I feel blessed to call them my siblings as well. Um, in terms of how my birth order influenced me, um, you know, I, I think that it made me a leader. It made me want to lead and take people in a certain direction um, or the, the direction they want to go, but just give them some coaching. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was 14 and um, I helped to raise my brother and sister. My mom worked for a few years there and so I made meals and helped with homework and assured we did our um, chores, you know, so we could get our um, allowances and things were in order when mom got home. Wow. So for the most part, while you um, have the blended family later in life, uh, you pretty much were the oldest and then had those tendencies and again, were responsible and helping raise the family. What's, what's the age difference between you and your uh, sister and brother? Uh, so um, I was the oldest. My sister's 13 years younger, excuse me, 13 months younger, um, but we are very different. I'm very extroverted. She's rather introverted. It was, it was an interesting dynamic growing up. And then I have a brother that's five years our junior and is a typical youngest child, you know, um, just in terms of, of how he was cared for as a child and how we all love him. And we've all been successful adults and have great relationships now. And none of us live in the same city, which is interesting because we certainly love when we get back together with one another. Yeah, so, so a close family. Cool. So what, uh, what activities did you do as a kid? Was, were you, you involved in sports or music or dance? Um, not dance, although I state that that would have been my preference. In second grade, I supposedly chose piano which I took for six and a half years and I can play chopsticks now. Um, <laughs> and that, that started um, the day that I was in a Parks and Rec um, dog show, which that the park happened to be in our backyard. And our um, four month old black lab puppy had gotten her foot slammed in a car door. So she had a, a cast, which of course was a bunch of summer neighborhood kids made her very popular and I was winning the dog show as my mom took me off my first day of piano lessons. Hence it's starting the whole experience off incorrectly. But um, I certainly value good piano music. I'm just not the one to perform it. Um, and then I did dabble in sports. I was a cheerleader in grade school, played basketball. And my sister and I um, were synchronized swimmers um, and I always loved swimming. We grew up on a sailing lake, so we had a very small boat, but we went to sailing regattas as a family and um, spent a lot of time outdoors and on the water. 
which probably led to me coming to Colorado eventually. Oh, interesting. The synchronized swimmer. I think you're my first synchronized swimmer. Uh, <laughs> was, was that something that you did as the, in the high school? Was that offered in the high school or? No, I mean, playing to my leadership skills, it was, again, it was a summer parks and rec thing that kind of turned to, we took the classes for so long that my sister and I eventually helped to teach them. And I enjoyed it so much. I wanted it in my school. I went to the Catholic high school in town that didn't have a pool of our own. So I went to the public school. I spoke to them about hours when we could use their pool. Um, even spoke to the synchronized swimming coach at that public school about um, shared time um, for us to get, you know, our, our team started and then went to the athletic coach at our high school to say, I've done all this pre-work um, and put things in place. And I didn't look at the money side of it, as of course. I was probably a sophomore in high school at the time. But um, I went to them with this whole proposal on how we could have a synchronized swimming team. And um, they, they didn't like that idea and didn't move forward with it. But I guess in hindsight, that's one of the first experiences of me kind of taking something on because I wanted to make it happen. Yeah, take, you know, taking that leadership role. And, but it sounds like you had to talk to so many people. That's really cool that you understood all of the stakeholders or all the people involved and went to all of them to get the buy-in. And even though it sounded like it came up with a no. <laughs> it was still a good practice to walk through, you know, in life, everything doesn't always turn out the way you want it to, but it gives you that foundational experience of recognizing who the key players are and who you need to talk to. Um, you know, our school was really heavy into sports and with my parents divorcing in my sophomore year, some of this is probably something I talk, took on in my own head versus my parents mandating it, but I, I practically worked full time my junior year. My first job was in a bakery of, um, think of our King Supers. There's a, a store called Hy-Vee in the Midwest. And um, so I went and cut bread and bagged hamburger buns and decorated cakes and served um, yeah, donuts. Um, for six and a half years through half of high school and during holidays of college. Wow, and I'm guessing that's an early morning shift. Absolutely, it was beautiful. I was there at four o'clock in the morning. In the summer, that was ideal because by the time my friends woke up to go to the quarry, mind you, we're, we're in Iowa, there weren't a lot of lakes, but there was a, a quarry nearby that we all went to swim at and um, my day ended 11, at 11 or 12. And for teenagers, that was the time most of them were waking up. So I'd get to go out to the quarry and swim and play and go to evening concerts. And um, I, I've, I've always taken very little sleep and enjoyed early mornings. The older I've become, the less I like the 4 a.m. shift, but I'm still the first one on the golf course and ready and able to go fly fishing at 5 a.m. Oh, okay. Well, boy, you've answered a lot of questions here and given us some great insight into who you are. So uh, one of my next questions is uh, introvert or extrovert, but you already answered that in terms of your extrovert. Um, but uh, let's go then to the fun meter on a scale of one to five, one being couch potato and five being the life of the party. Uh, where do you put yourself? I would probably say I'm a seven or an eight. You know, there was a, a time when I was a 10 because I'm also the one who also orchestrates events and I, I don't like a lot of downtime. I'm really striving for blackout bingo in life with the exception of, of a fear of heights. So I'm not going out on that glass platform over the Grand Canyon and I'm not jumping out of a plane, but um, I, I'd say I've tackled a lot of different experiences and continue to wish to do so. Okay, well, then that leads to the next question about risk-taking. Same scale, one to five. Are you off the charts on risk-taking, yeah, it sounds like? <laughs> I, I think I'm pretty, you know, when I, I was trying to reflect on that preparing for today, and I'm like, uh, okay, well, I got married and moved cross-country to California, having only been there once, you know, with the brand new husband and no family or friends there at the age of 21, um, you know, that was 
pretty risky. And I, I've had similar experiences since then. So um, yeah, I think on a, a risk-taking scale, some people might see me as a 10, although I don't do extreme sports. Um, that might be a 10 plus. So I'm rating myself, uh, uh, well, you're one through five, excuse me. So I'm a five. <laughs> no. Well, you can be over. You can be a 10 on a scale of five. I'm fine with that. And that explains what we talked about your title initially when you said, if, you, if you're not having fun, then what's the point of life, right? So, <laughs> okay, so let's uh, transition then. I, I love how those questions and the icebreakers give us a sense of who you are and kind of bring us up to a little bit of speed on uh, you growing up in life. But uh, give us a sense of uh, what it means to be the Chief Relationship Officer for, for Prosper Bridge and the Queen of Culture for RISE. So just give us a little snippet of what you do today, and then we'll get into, how did I get here? Okay, great. Um, well, Prosper Bridge and RISE are both in their infancy. Both are companies that are less than two years old and um, are considered startups. Um, Prosper Bridge is um, seeking $2.6 million um, for funding. So presently, it's my partner and I, um, Jervis DeChico. He's the CEO. And um, we're both working diligently together, as any startup does, to just kind of take bits and pieces structurally of getting us up and going. Um, I formally joined the company next Monday. I've had to drop some licenses on my financial services side of my business. And um, presently, Jervis has done a lion's share of the work related to our business. Um, Prosper Bridge does this. Um, we contract with companies. I think financial education is so huge. I mean, it's, it's had a pattern and kind of woven itself throughout my whole entire life. Has has the passion for education. It's, having people understand what they're doing. Why do they have that job? What, are they, what do they have access to as tools? So Prosper Bridge contracts with employers. We come in, we do monthly educational classes for employees. And then we have personal prosperity assistance, or um, I think of them as a financial coach that's assigned to each employee. The company affords each employee at least 30 minutes a month to meet with their coach. And um, they have opportunity to kind of say, hey, I don't know how to create a budget. I don't know if my 401k is set up correctly. Um, why do I need renter's insurance if I don't own a home? Or if I own a home, I haven't shopped my home in auto in a long time. How can I do that? Um, so it's preparing for different stages of life. And um, I have found as we, we talk about my experience um, working in HR for a number of years, I could talk to 350, 400 people in a room and share a message, but people wanted the intimacy of one-on-one -on -one time to ask more intimate questions and to be more vulnerable. And I really think it's the vulnerability of the human spirit that I'm so attracted to. On the RISE side, so RISE is a financial services business I won't say that we're typical, we're very atypical. We all work as a team very closely together. There is not a monetary amount that our clients are required to have. I firmly believe that every business and every person in the country should have a financial coach. Because um, there's some aspects of your financial world that you don't know what you should do with. Um, I'm not right for everybody. Everybody's not right for me. That's perfectly okay, that's part of life. Um, but I really love the opportunity and am honored by the opportunity to walk someone through their financial life, you know, wherever they happen to be. Do they have to have $10 million? No. Do they have to have $10,000? No. All of us have to start somewhere, and it's really an honor to help people achieve their dreams of what they want their life to look like. Yeah, I can see how both businesses totally fit for you because they're both about education and coaching and connecting um so but i also get and i think you've told me before about how you had to drop some of your licenses because there's a lot of regulations in your business right about what you can and can't um do with your license so okay 
that, that makes That's sense. correct. So yeah. the security side, I can't have undue influence over people making investment choices on the Prosper Bridge side. So that ties into the work that I do at RISE. And on Prosper Bridge side, we don't do any sales. We do education. If someone needs help, we have avenues in the community to help them. That includes the use of RISE. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I can totally see how they're connected. So, so let's talk about how did I get here? When you were junior high and high school, were you thinking financial services is where I want to go? Financial literacy? Is that what you wanted to be when you grew up? I'm um, actually, no, I initially wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, I had friends that were kind of bussed into the Catholic school, both at grade school and high school that lived on farms. Um, some of you may have seen um, the movie Bridges in Madison County. Um, that's in Winterstead, Iowa, not terribly far from my home. Um, those bridges are where I went to horse camp in the summer and where several of my friends lived. So I'd spend weekends on farms and play with baby kittens and move pigs from location to location based on where they are in the life cycle and the gestation cycle, or be bareback on a horse with my friend going from one of their barns to another barn a couple miles away. Uh, and I was the one who took care of our two black labs, um, our, our elderly female lab, our first lab, we had puppies. And so, you know, I became the house veterinarian or self-appointed and really loved the animals. Um, but I wasn't terribly scholastically inclined at that time. I've always been extremely social. And if there had been a um, party planning degree um, and event planning, that's probably more in line with where I would have been. Um, you know, so I, I started out at Iowa State University and was a business major. I think every time I had a new teacher, in my, my freshman year in Psych 101, the man that taught that class is the gentleman who taught sign language to gym, chimpanzees. So I went from veterinary to psychology, um, eventually did some work. My most successful um, semester on campus, I was carrying 18 units. I was um, pledging a sorority. I was a little sister in a fraternity and I was running an on-campus, kind of think of it as on-campus Olympics. It's called Visa. I was running that for the fraternity and I was the um, advertising manager for four on-campus magazines. Um, so there's a repeat pattern in my life of when I'm the busiest is when I have to be the most organized. And um, those are the times in my life I've really thrived. Um, I didn't end up finishing school there. I, um, my junior year, I got married and moved to California with the understanding from my parents that I would continue my education. So I moved to California. Um, I had worked for Nutrisystem Weight Loss Centers. That's now kind of a web-based system. Used to have facilities throughout the country. My mom ran the most successful um, Nutrisystem Center. And I worked at three of them doing aerobics classes and doing the administration. So I unified all their booking, their book systems and the process that clientele went through. So when I moved to California, I was afforded a job with a different Nutrisystem out there. Wow, um, that, that is yeah. a lot. This is all right before you're 21. Holy cow. <laughs> now we're yeah. still getting up at 4 a.m. still and cutting bread and, and and packaging hamburger buns and all of that too, or? No, I think um, at that time, you know, I did that at Christmas. I didn't do that during the summers. Um, I'd come back and help out in the bakery uh, and certainly still have friends now that I acquired back there at Hy-Vee um, many, many years ago. I, I probably have a dozen people that are still in my life from that experience. Yeah. I, I also want to go back to your, your, sounds like you were um, alluding to kind of each new professor you had, you got really excited about what subject they brought and, and then you would get kind of switch over to their, <laughs> their major or their, uh, their industry. Um, 
that it's so funny. I can't tell you how many interviews I've had where people said that that's how they kind of found something is they were so inspired by that professor, uh, regardless of who he or she was, but they just really connected with the professor. So did you end up kind of landing in my, um, more than one area then, or did you kind of keep bouncing for a while? Um, I really kept bouncing for a while. I didn't finish my undergrad until I was 35 and I'd lived in California for uh, 14 years, oh. but I did continue what I promised to my parents and I took at least one class a semester from my 21st birthday on until completing it at Un University of San Francisco at 35. And I went on and did grad school at University of San Francisco also. Wow. Well, congratulations for sticking that out. That's uh, That takes persistence and discipline. It felt really good. Thank you. You know, I mean, I felt like I was part of some special society when, you know, in hindsight, when I look back, I'm like, hey, I was smart 10 years ago, too. I just was <laughs> confident and applied myself. Um you know, my, my family, and this may be some of my own perception and the fact that my parents were divorcing in the midst of high school, but both my brother and my older stepbrothers um, went to very prominent Ivy League schools. And um, I felt that my sister and I had the choice to go to school in Iowa because we'd get married and a man would take care of us. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a mom who worked a lot outside the home. So I wasn't taught about careers, you know, in Catholic school, the only choices you really had were your college prep. So I could pick a science, I could pick a language, but otherwise my classes were kind of chosen for me, which made the transition to college hard because there were so many different things to do. And for somebody with my personality of liking to do many diverse things, it was really hard to orchestrate that path effectively. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm glad you shared that perspective from, you know, kind of being limited in the high school learning and then getting to college and being unlimited, which is what college is, right? That's why they want you to pick a major so you can go down a path. But how do you find that major? How do you find that thing? And that's what this podcast has been about, too, is how do you find those things when you're just starting out? So so you're in California. You Are you working at uh, the Nutrisystem, you said, again, with your mom's business? So I worked for Nutrisystem for a while and had some unpleasant experiences there. You know, I mean, I, I had all the skills necessary to be a branch manager, but it was age discrimination. I was too young. And it was a period, I mean, this was the late 80s. And unfortunately, the, the centers in that area, um, it was very prominent or predominant use of cocaine. So, I mean, they'd have team meetings and they would be using cocaine. And I thought it, it, it just wasn't something that I had been exposed to or I was accepting of. And I'm like, you're telling these people that they can come here and that the products work and that they'll get thin and have better eating habits associated with the products. And all of you are thin because you're all coked up all the time. So that wasn't an atmosphere I cared to be a part of. So I quit that job. And that was my first financial job. I went to work for a savings loan as a bank teller. Ah, and, and why did you pick that job? Um, I don't really recall. I think it was close to home. I do remember, I didn't necessarily, I've never been somebody who kind of balances my checkbook to the penny. So the accounting side of money wasn't um, appealing to me, but the financial side and the strategy of how money works. My favorite class at Iowa State was, um, it was an elective called money and banking. I, I, a lot of my elective classes were in economics. And I love the money multiplier, M3, and the way that money is multiplied and how that affects an economy. That just, I mean, Things like that have always kind of enticed me and I'm like, tell me more, teach me more. And um, so um, not only was it close to home, but it kind of gave me a foot in the door, if you will, to more of um, financial education. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. And, and hopefully they weren't doing uh, 
extracurricular drugs <laughs> in team meetings. <laughs> I, no, I just no, they were lovely people, but um, I, I eventually, I, in fairly short order, I left that job and I went to work for a printing company um, doing accounts payable. And I worked there for four and a half, five years. This gentleman had a vision of a printing company that also did that process involved a lot. So pre-press is the color separation and knowing which screens to use for which colors when you're printing pieces of art or multicolor um, documentation. Now, mind you, this was the time when they still had blue bar and carbon copy paper. So I'm aging myself, but I worked for a printing company did, that did that and eventually grew to have multiple presses. They had pre-press, they had a binding department. That's where I got my introduction to AR. I'm sorry, your introduction, you broke up there. Your introduction to what? That's when I had my introduction to HR, ah. human resources. So, um, you know, they didn't have someone who welcomed people. They didn't say, hey, you know, at that time there wasn't hazmat, so there wasn't the yellow paint that we're used to seeing around um, steps or dangerous equipment. These were big, huge presses, and you needed to stay away from them in certain areas. There wasn't anybody who walked new people through and said, this is where you put your lunch and this is where the time clock is. And this is, you know, nobody gave them a delay of the land. Um, and around that same period of time, two other things happened. In California, you had to have a safety committee and you kind of had to document your safety meetings and open enrollment happened. And there wasn't anybody to meet with the broker to negotiate our benefits. So um, as is often the case, I, I always had an attitude of, oh, I don't know it, but I can learn it. You know, I never had a, it's not my job thought process. So I'm like, oh, you want me to do that? Okay, you want me to do that? Okay. I mean, it makes you much more employable if you're willing to take on things and you do them well and you ask questions, you do them correctly. And I can still remember that first gentleman that I sat down with that was a really successful benefits broker in town. And he explained benefits and why it was important and what our employees needed. And um, that was the impetus to my interest in human resources and um, my path of being the welcome wagon slash culture queen, wanting people to feel included, wanting people to value their jobs. I've never had a job I mean, I may have had a period of time where I disliked the job, but I've never disliked what I did, you know, and I've met with people who absolutely hate what they do, and I have no understanding of that. It just doesn't compute in my head. Why would you do that? Why would you get up every day and go do something you dislike? Um, so that job I stayed at for quite a while because keep in mind, Kathy, I still didn't have my degree then. And that really, that stigma set, stayed really heavy on my heart and my mind that all my friends have their degree and I'm now 22, 23 and I don't have my degree. So I can't go get a real job because I'm not employable. Oh, wow. Wow. So you gave that no degree a lot of meaning and it weighed on. Yeah. Well, I gotta say I was similar. I went from high school and started working didn't know what I want to do in college. So why would I pay for anything? I didn't even know what college could give me. Similar time frame. I think this was the 80s. But I remember when I started working in more of a corporate environment, the first thing right away I realized was I felt like I was at a disadvantage because I didn't have a degree. And um, so then I started going to school part-time, working full-time, and then got the degree over a period of time. So yeah, I, I totally can relate to your your mindset about, oh, it's a gap and it's, uh, I need to get that. I felt like I needed to get the piece of paper, the credential. Um, and then, but it was also easy because I was getting a business degree and I was working in a business and, and management. So they just went hand in hand. Everything I was learning at school fit with the job, everything the job fit with school. So it was pretty easy to, to kind of pull off, even though it took a lot of time. <laughs> so I, I, I agree and I understand. What was so your when, job when you started at the printing company? So ironically, you say that I was just going to mention that when I started there, I did accounts payable 
then I did accounts payable, accounts receivable, then I did payroll, then I assisted the controller. And as all this happened, the company was teeter tottering. So it went from being really successful and upwards of 100, 125 employees and managing open enrollment and helping people, you know, onboard to the opposite, you know, sadly the owner got into business with people who shouldn't have that didn't know how to run businesses. And long story short, the controller left and my last job was there was interim controller. And I locked the business when it went bankrupt and moved the computer system to the owner's home and transitioned some of the business and they, they immediately started business again under a, a different entity, um, but, you know, terminated, helped in the termination process and downsizing of the company before I left them. And, and that was really a blessing because it would have stayed based on my mindset and um, got my first HR job working for a um, specimen laboratory, um, PCL that had hundreds of locations all over, all over, all of California um, and had draw stations. So um, I don't know what labs, you know, there's LabCorp, places like that here. It was similar to that. It was a very large, successful company for a period of time. And I was a benefits coordinator. So I ended up in that position um, this is kind of pre-computers. I loaded the back of my car with a file box that had like enrollment paperwork for benefits and follow-up information for your vision insurance, your dental insurance, your 401k. And I did um, classes. I lived in Sacramento and I did classes in um, Santa Rosa, Palo Alto, San Jose. And I would pick different draw stations along the way because I wanted to know what they did. I wanted to know the employees. I wanted to help the employees. And um, I, I've always been face-to-face, -face, you know? I'm not a call this 800 number person. I wanted to really help people and um, have face-to-face -face time with them because they, they're busy draw station. They're not gonna stop in the middle of their day to call HR. But if I stopped by, inevitably people had questions. So that was kind of the start to my HR career. Wow, wow, I can see how the, the dots got connected. So had there been, and I guess I, I don't even know what the what it's called today, had there been a major in college that was HR, do you th think you would have picked that way back when? I would have known to pick it. You know, I mean, I didn't, I was at the disadvantage where I wasn't ever supposed to have a career or maybe it was my parents thought, God, she's so set on being a veterinarian. We don't need to tell her about anything else. I, I don't really know. Um, but in my head, I was supposed to be a wife, a mother, PTA. You know, I was gonna be like my mom and my husband was gonna work and I was gonna raise the children and be there to support him. And so I, I didn't even have a feel for what it would be like to have a career. Yeah, and what careers were even out there, let alone what strengths you had to fit into a career. Wow, interesting, interesting, Helen, how we grow up with this notion of what we're gonna be and do, uh, or, or no notion, right, <laughs> of what we're gonna be and do. So, well, cool, so that got your start into HR. Um, how did you end up then getting into Colorado? And, and uh, you know, did, I'm assuming you kind of just kept in the ranks of HR over time? I did stay in the ranks of HR. I worked in the benefits area and 401k education for a long time. So eventually, sadly, that company also went under um, bad management practices from the owner and his sons drove the company under. And um, I left there and um, had the fortunate experience to work for Packer Bell NEC Computers. Um, one of the one of the most interesting jobs. So think of that as one of the startups of Colorado, just like grows by leaps and bounds, and they grow so fast that the policies and the institutional structures don't keep up. That's kind of what Packer Bell was like. 
So by the time I was there, I was in, I was 30. Um, the average age of a person there was 35. Um, they, the earthquake had happened in California and they lost their facility in Southern California, purchased the old army depot in Northern California. We had 6,000 employees on site. I worked in a 12, 14 person benefits department, did benefits um, and my primary job was 401k education. So I did it on our campus as well as two other campuses throughout the country. And I ran all the leave of absence for the whole company. So anybody who went on a leave of absence had to process through me. Wow. Wow. So you really kind of jumped into the fire. <laughs> well, it was nice to be part of, I mean, we were writing policies and helping to create policies. And um, it was just an interesting time to see this was the dot-com. I mean, they were buying people houses as part of their relocation and fully paying for them. And lots of crazy things went on during the dot-com in the Bay Area. Um, you know, and, and I was at that company for a few years. They had had an employee shooting. A prior employee used another employee to get in. And that place was, was like Fort Knox. I mean, you had to go through security to get in every day. I'm sure it was a little more lax prior to the shooting, but um, you know, I, I dealt with the repercussions of what's now known as um, PTSD and the employees that were still traumatized by the gunshots that nobody was shot, but there were, there were gunshots in some of the walls of the buildings. And um, it was an interesting time in, in a very educational period of time. I can tell you that those same 12 or 13 people are still very, very dear friends now today. Every time I go back to California, we all get together and have a dinner or lunch, usually at our favorite sushi place. Um, but it was, it was a really fun time and um, very instrumental in my career. Yeah. So it's a pivotal age probably for you because you're doing all that learning and growing, but contributing big role. But, you know, amazing time because the dot-com were booming, right? Everything was booming. Um, but with boom comes kind of a little bit of craziness, like what you're saying, right? There was also an earthquake and then a shooting. And so from an HR perspective or just in, from a leadership perspective, there's a lot going on to, uh, to manage and navigate. Wow. So a lot of, like you said, just shared experiences between you and those 12, 13 people and that's memorable. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and then eventually, you know, I mean, having having been through some downsizings in the past, I thought we're HR. You know, HR is always the last to go because we did a fair amount of downsizing and we, it would help through the process of outsourcing um, resume review and things like that to three or four hundred people. And then one day they called all of us and the whole maintenance department into one of the on-site buildings. Um, and we were all let go at the same time. And we were all in shock because it was like, oh my gosh, this company must really be doing poorly if all non-profit generating departments are being eliminated. And sure enough, Packer Bell and EC met their demise um, shortly thereafter. Wow, wow. So you get to see the highs and the lows. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and I mean, in, in retrospect, I looked back and thought, well, they shouldn't have been buying those people houses and yeah. using their money frivolously, um, you know, and doing more to, it, it, it was, they were good computers. Um, I just think that there was, I don't know, I wasn't close enough to the machines at that time. It was such a big company. You know, something I didn't mention, Kathy, is because it was such a big company, I did two things. So I did um, 401k education meetings, like I mentioned, for three or 400 people. And I, I spoke effectively to a group, but I just didn't have gestures. So we started an on-campus Toastmasters group, which was you know, more than my degrees and certifications and licenses. That was most, one of the most impactful educational processes that I went through to learn to be able to speak extemporaneously. And it helps me with my gestures. When you're in front of a large group of people, you have to appear larger than life. 
Um, so that was one thing that I did. And then also, um, you know, on campus, those 400 people at a time would know who I am. So as they're walking on campus, hi, Maggie, hi, Maggie. But I didn't know who any of them were. And we had an on-campus university and all employees were required to have 40 units of education every year. And so I taught at the university also as a means to know pods of employees. So I would know some of them and know their names because that's always been something really important. Yeah, and you're, you're a people person. We, we established <laughs> that right at the beginning, an extrovert. Well, I, I too am a fellow Toastmaster and uh, speak very highly of it. It just, you know, it has so much to do with repetition and practice and just getting up and doing it. Uh, and then when you have to do it for your job, it would then, I, you know, I think it would be, you know, even tenfold more effective because now you're practicing and using it uh, for something that you know is valuable. Some people do it just to get more comfortable when an, uh, a speaking thing might come up later. But in your case, you knew they were always coming up. So it was a matter of, uh, you know, always being ready in practice. So. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Well, so I'm definitely seeing these themes of, of education of others, educating others, financial acumen and, you know, benefits. I mean, all of it now, I, it's wrapped together. I can, you know, the dots are definitely getting clearer about how you got to where you are today. So, but we are starting to run out of time. I can't believe it already. Um, <laughs> so, um, how, you know, one last story about how did you kind of get from there to what you're doing now in terms of, I mean, you know, now being part of a startup and sounds like very purposeful on who your partners are. Absolutely. So from there, I worked for the health industry for a little while in HR and then worked for um, Airgas, which is an atmospheric gas and welding company. Um, I transferred here. And again, you know, I mentioned that really busy time in, in college. Well, the next busy time was in grad school. I had to take 22 units because they were ending part of my program. Um, I was, because I was finishing school, I was offered a promotion to come to Denver um, to be head of HR for um, the regional company here. So I was finishing school. I was also um, the president of the HR association in California with the board of 22 people. Um, so I had to finish that up. I took the job here in October, flew back and forth for two months to finish my board responsibilities and educational responsibilities. Bought my first great Dane and my first solo house by myself. Um, and it came here after eight years with Airgas in California. I worked for Airgas here for five and a half years. This was the largest of 12 regional companies geographically and the most profitable for a number of years. Um, so loved that experience, great company. Um, then I worked for the beef industry as head of HR for a year. And then I took a year off. So as much as I loved both those experiences, um, I was usually the only or one of only two female executives. And that, that becomes an arduous task after a while. You know, I mean, in, in one of the companies, I was the only female executive that was a director, not a VP. You know, and um, I was the head of a department. By definition, that should have meant a VP title, but it didn't. And um, so th there were things that just weighed heavy on me. Um, I felt like I wasn't learning new things, which I always like to do. I was transferring knowledge to people. I had a wonderful staff, many of which are still at Airgas, um, but it was just time, it was time for a change. And so um, I um, took a year off. I had seen the movie The Way um, with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez and it's um, their travels and depiction of the Camino de Santiago in Spain. So I took a year off, I went to Europe and I, couch surfed in Paris and took classes at the Cordon Bleu. And then I spent 40 days and walked across Spain um, and another week to go to Barcelona, one of my favorite cities because I love everything Gaudi. Um, and then I came back and started to really um, tackle the career of being a financial advisor. I wanted to take all those years of helping people internally and understanding their internal benefits and always um, 
talking about what they needed to supplement that. You know, it's like what your company has isn't the end all be all. They mean well and they're taking care of you, but you need other things too. So that started my career in financial services um, a little shy of seven years ago. Um, it was a big change. It's hard to go from a regular paycheck and vacation time to being commission only. Um, but I really love taking that experience of helping all my internal employees to helping my community. Um, you know, I, I had traveled a lot while with Airgas, so I didn't know companies here, um, even though I'd lived here for some 13 years by then. So I joined the board for Colorado Companies to Watch and learned a bit a lot about the small companies, um, you know, past startup stage, there's stage two companies, but it's done a lot to help me learn about our community and helping businesses as well as families um, to, to have a smarter and um, more well-run financial life. Yeah, wow. Wow, well, that was certainly a lot to put in in a few minutes there. Man, thanks for the recap. That uh, So the year off sounds very powerful and also sounds very unlike you. It seems like when you have to have, you know, seven different things going on and to take a whole year off. Um, but maybe that's also like you in terms of taking that risk and really figuring things out. And um, maybe you need to completely unplug in order to figure that stuff out, huh? Well, it, 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 it wasn't terribly unplugged. I mean, think of two sets of clothes, a dress, a raincoat, and way too many books in a backpack to travel to Europe, something I'd never done before. You know, I was used to, I had, I had two good friends that I did international travel with and one of my many passions. And in a particular year, none of the, neither of them could go. And I thought, well, this is crazy. It doesn't mean I can't go somewhere. And the Camino, um, I started to walk with 400 people. It felt like my freshman year in college. Um, and met people along the way. Some are still good friends, but it was really a time to be introspective and learn about me. You know, as I, I got on the, the train in Paris, a language I don't speak, going to a home of a family I didn't know, I was like, what in the heck am I doing? This is crazy. And the mom who spoke English wasn't home. The young sixth grade daughter was. So I had one semester of French in college. So I had a broken conversation with her. And then I, I pushed myself and walked for 40 days across Spain. And I had really, really bad blisters. And once I took a little downtime in those heels, then I had shin splints. I was like, I'm doing this, damn it. I'm making this happen. Um, and I, I completed the Camino and it, it was really, um, it was really instrumental in my life. It created a lot of internal peace. Not that I had huge strife or struggle before then, but you have to challenge yourself in life to do something that really builds your confidence in yourself. And that was probably it for me. Wow. Wow. Well, and I'm going back to that seven or eight on the risk scale, on a scale of <laughs> one to five. Uh, yeah, that definitely, definitely fits there. Well, you're going to have to send us a picture of that Great Dane. Uh, so we can have that in the slideshow. I'm, I'm very curious about that one. And maybe there's more since. Uh, well, that is my first great Dane, Bacchus. I'm named after my love for wine and the wine god, Bacchus. Um, he passed away four years ago at 11 and a half. I now have a 19-week-old, 59-pound um, brindle male at home who is now the love of our lives, along with our two shepherds. Um, and you know, happily and beautifully remarried since coming here to Cal Colorado. I still slip up and say California, and I've been here 17 years. Ah. So yeah, life is good. I can certainly send pictures. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we, I want to see the the furry friends that uh, they keep you happy. So, well, Maggie, we do have to start wrapping up here. So, um, when you look back on your career and your life. Tell us what you think has served you best. You know, it could be a strength or a discipline or a personality trait. What do you think served you best? I think my inquisitive nature. You know, I feel like I'm a permanent two-year-old. I'm always asking why, why, why. 
you know, and and trying to to make a difference, not sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. Um, so I think that that has served me really well. My diverse interests mean I have an inquisitive mind and I'm willing to help do different things. And I think that um, I warm up to people easily and I have long-standing relationships. You know, I mean, they just last a really long time. I care about people. I do birthday cards as much as I can. Facebook's really help, helpful for women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I really value and appreciate the people in my life and I, I hope I make them feel that value. Very cool. Well, you're in the people business. <laughs> yeah. It matters. And then any uh, words of wisdom that you got at one point in your career that stood out for you that you kind of went, oh, this is, I'm going to use this going forward for myself and for others. I, I would say, and I don't know who, whose quote this is, but it's a quote that I've tried to remember to live by. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always have what you've always had. You know, and I've always, you know, I, I don't aspire to be a multi-kajillionaire and have tons of money. I want to be comfortable and I want to have a lot of good life experiences. And I, I can make that happen. Everyone can make that happen for themselves. You just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. Wow. Love that. Love that. Well, that'll definitely be quoted, quoted in the abstract. So... <laughs> Well, I'm Anne. I think it's a perfect inspirational ending for our conversation today. And uh, I think, though, because you're part of two startups, maybe a year from now, I need to check back with you and do another interview to say, well, where are we now? That I uh, love that. Another year has gone by. And our uh, goal is to help 750,000 families or people in the first 10 years. I'm hoping well on, we're well on our way a year from now to accomplishing that goal. Well, awesome. Well, I'll definitely have you on the list for, for round two. So thank you so much for sharing your story today. And thank you. Thank you. And listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe below and you'll be notified when other interviews are published. If you have any questions for me or for Maggie, please post those on my website, lifestorycurator.com, and I'll make sure to get them to her. I'll also post your social media information on, on my website too, so people can find you. So on that note, everybody stay safe, stay well, and let's keep sharing those stories. Have a great day.